Hello and welcome to another installment of Borders Blatherings, the podcast that shines a light on the curious, shadowy and often magical history of the Scottish borderlands. So Mary, um, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm also very well and I'm really looking forward to today's topic Mm. Witches. Aha, something from the dark past. I'm particularly looking forward to this because you have recently had a book published on this very topic, mm -hmm. published by Lewis Press, entitled Borders Witch Hunt 17th Century Witchcraft Trials in the Scottish Borders. And of course, listeners can find more details on that and, and your other publications on our website. Indeed, they can, yes. So, um, As autumn is approaching as we speak, uh, we decided that we were going to do something a little bit more dark, mysterious and magical because last time we spoke about the Borders' common writings and the carnival atmosphere and this great celebration. So without further ado, let's move on to the witches of the Borders. Indeed, and there were many. Throughout the borders, not just confined to the biggest cities in, in, in Scotland? No, they were found mostly all over Scotland, although there were a few patches up in the sort of uh, northwest uh, where they weren't. But in the borders, there were witches right the way across the border areas, um, from small villages like Stow all the way up to the big towns like Hoyk. So yes, there were witches aplenty in the 17th century. And why particularly in the borders then do I, do I detect the influence of the church? Oh, absolutely. The Kirk, Specifically? The Kirk and their obsessions. The problem with the borders was partly its locality and partly the background relationship between the Kirk and various other parts of the world. The problem is the 17th century starts off with plague and famine and war. Mm -hmm. And as far as the Kirk is concerned... That's the start of the apocalypse. They were obsessed with the devil. The Scottish Reformation had been traumatic. We hadn't had a Reformation the way they had in England where they had moved gently, well, relatively gently from the Catholic Church to the Protestant Church. We had absolutely said, we're Catholic today, no, nope, we're Protestant now. And we had chosen Calvinism, but we'd chosen a very severe form of Calvinism as promoted by John Knox, who pitches up with his monstrous trumpet of the monstrous regiment of women and jumps up and down and gets himself all aerated about female leaders. So you come into the 17th century and the Kirk of Scotland knows that they are God's elect, they're Calvinist Scots. The problem is in the north of England, you've still got Catholics. The big uh, names there, the Percy's and the Neville's, they had kept their Catholicism. So you get Catholics just below the border. You get Catholics across in Ireland and they're sort of sneaking over to Glasgow a little bit, so I'm not quite sure what's happening there. You know you've got Catholics up in the Highlands, and anyway, you've got Highlanders up there, and they're a bit odd, a bit scary. And then across across in Europe, you've got the Thirty Years' War breaks out mm -hmm. in 1618, and that is a war of religion. So the Kirk in the border starts to feel itself a little bit under siege, if you like, because they seem to be surrounded. They also had... Um, Difficult relationship with Edinburgh, which had gone back for several years. And so where you would have gone to Edinburgh to look for help, you weren't really getting it because you weren't really, you didn't really want help from Edinburgh, but Edinburgh wasn't really offering help. So the Borders Kirk feels very much alone. Uh -huh. 
Therefore, they develop this siege mentality. And because they are God's elect, obviously they're the ones that are going to be attacked by the devil. So that's why you get such a, a high level of which pre- prosecutions, I apologise, prosecutions in the borders. Now, thanks for that. And on the back of your book, I'm holding the book in my hand as we speak, you have a biblical quote, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Indeed, yes. Now, coming at this from a linguistic point of view, it's pretty clear to me that the odds are stacked against witches from the get-go here. The word witch in the English language it is, it has very negative connotations. You know, don't trust her, she's a real witch. Whereas we have words like wizard and warlock, which suggest something entirely different. You know, he's a wizard with the plough. Yes. He can yeah. get through two fields in a morning before he's had breakfast. And so it seems clear that the odds were stacked against women from the get-go. Yes, although not all witches were women. Not all witches were women. No, some of the witches were men and some of the male witches became warlocks. So it's a nice confusing uh, uh, pile, but certainly female witches, oh, that was it. The minute that first accusation was out, you you were going to hide into nothing. And did the male witches get off more lightly than male the, witches, the female ones? It was, it was a different attitude. For example, if, you, if somebody accuses me of being a witch, and they'll say, oh, that Mary, she's a right witch. And you go to the minister, and the minister looks at me and says, oh, well, aye, she's from Glasgow, and, you know, not too sure about her. Aye, she's a witch. Let's get an investigation going. It was known as a commission to try a witch, to investigate a witch. And so it would be believed, the initial accusation is believed, and the investigation is undertaken. If you're a male witch, if I accuse you of being a witch, you could turn around and say, how dare you? Who on earth do you think you are? I'm a man of good standing in this community. How dare you accuse me? And in a lot of cases, the initial accuser, the woman who made the accusation, could actually find herself in court for slander. So even at that initial stage, a lot of the the accusations against men fall at that stage. Oh, right. You then have an investigation. The investigation is going to be done, it's going to be led by the minister. There'll be two or three of the local good men, as they're known. Chances are you know them. So they're not going to find you guilty. So at the end of the investigation, they're going to say, ah, nothing to it, it's women's blether, it's women's gossip. No, no charges are brought. At the end of the investigation, if charges are brought... Now, if they're brought against me, I'm in the toll booth. I'm already locked up in a cell, in a dirty, stinking cell, waiting to be brought to trial. They come to you and they say, right, we've decided that you're going to have to go to trial. We're going to arrest you and take you to the toll booth. And you say, no, you're not. Uh, I'll go under house arrest, thank you very much. And so, again, they would allow men to go under house arrest. And then you get as far as trial, and the chances are you can afford an advocate, and the chances are I can't. Um, You're much more likely to be acquitted, I am much more likely to be found guilty. And even if you are found guilty, you might get away with banishment or exile or a big fat fine, whereas I'm much, much more likely to actually be executed. It's a boys' club then, Mary. It's um, absolutely And a boys you club. might, I think, uh, get some degree of anonymity because I remember when I visited you some years ago in the local history archive, seeing some documents about a particular trial that had gone on in Stow, and there were eight or nine accused, eight of whom were women, who were named, and the one male was simply known in the records as a man from Lauder, a nearby village. Yes, that was quite common. Um, If your family had enough money 
and knew the right people to bribe, you could try and see if you, they could get your name <laughs> erased from the records as well. And there are some records up in the Privy Council records up in uh, Edinburgh where you can see where the person has been named and the name has actually been scratched out. Because, again, there's no shame in being arrested for a child. There is a huge shame, obviously, in being a witch. Interestingly, a lot of male accused commit suicide and there's a higher suicide rate amongst men than women because when you're arrested mm. and tried and convicted, your estate is forfeit to the Kirk if you're a convicted witch. If you commit suicide, you don't get a Christian burial, but your estate remains with your family. So for men, it was a way of taking care of their families if they could, so they would commit suicide. And there are lots of cases where men in cells are allowed to find a bit of rope all of a sudden, a bit of rope uh, sort of miraculously appears in their cell. Although there were men who escaped from the cells where the cell door miraculously was left open for them and the guards didn't wow. seem to see anything. Um, but yes, certainly the men were able to, as much as they could, hide anything they were doing. There's a case across in Stobo where there were two chaps who uh, visited the dumb warlock in the asylum house in Edinburgh. And they did this frequently. They were arrested, uh, they were tried, as in, you know, tried, investigated. And then just before they were brought to trial, the whole thing collapses for some reason. Um, they were relatively wealthy men, so we think they probably, I don't know, there was a bribe here or a nod or a wink there, but they were not brought to trial. But the warlock, in the dumb warlock in the asylum house, is never named. Now, if he'd been a witch, first of all, he would not have been in the asylum house. He'd have been executed, but he certainly was not named. And we do have situations where the law was actually quite particular during that century in that if you were a child under the age of 14, or if you were what was known as adult in your wits, you could not be brought to trial because you weren't responsible for what you'd done. But there are cases where women were arrested where they were obviously addled in their wits and doctors were brought in to examine them and the doctors would say, oh yes, she's addled in her wits, you can't bring her to trial. And then the Kirk minister would come in and say, no, nope, don't care, get her to trial anyway. And these women were dragged to trial and found and executed. Uh, there's a case down uh, with near Kelso, uh, Sir Alec Archibald Douglas, who uh, had four women uh, arrested and he was interrogating them. Why he was interrogating them and it wasn't his job, I've no idea. But he had these four women and the Privy Council wrote to him and told him, oh, fair enough, you need to be doing this and you need to be doing that. But you need to be careful that they're not children or adult in their wits. And the case in that situation collapses again because two of the women that he had allegedly arrested were under 10 years old. Oh, my word. And one of the other women was known as being adult in the fairies and she'd been seeing the fairies for years. So yeah, there there was there was lots of different things going on that if you had been a male witch, no. And then of course if you're a warlock, that's a whole other ballgame because you're very much a senior person and you're controlling female witches, which harks back to John Knox and the church's beliefs on yeah. the inferiority of women. Okay, great. So here in the borders, the vast majority of witches are female. Yes, about 75%. And you've established, thank you for that, that, that 
males accused of witchcraft uh, got it a little bit easier, though not, not wonderful. Was there anywhere in the world where the witches were predominantly male? Ah, now that's interesting. In most of Europe, about 75 to 85% of witches were women. And this is Protestant countries and Catholic countries. And then you go up to Scandinavia and Iceland and the numbers flip over. The, the thinking in the Scandinavian churches was that, yes, uh, the devil was attacking the church and, yes, he was going to attack godly people. But if he was going to do that, he's going to use men. He's going to use strong men to attack. He's not mm. going to use stupid, silly, gossiping women. <laughs> I knew that was good. So, so we got a bit of a back... Uh, a bit of a backhanded compliment there, but yeah. yes, the majority of witches uh, was were thought to be male in, in the Scandinavian countries. And it's, interestingly, when you get to the end of the 17th century, that's why the witchcraft trials start to peter out. There's a variety of reasons. There is less, uh, there's not so much war, there, there's plague has gone, famine has gone, people have stopped fighting as much. So the external pressures are not there. But the philosophers and the lawyers start thinking, are we really actually listening to the gossip of women? Do we really think the devil would actually listen to the gossip of women? And that's when it starts to peter out, but not for a full hundred years in Scotland, or actually more than a hundred years in Scotland. Okay, but let's stick with the gossip of women for the moment. So here in the borders, I want to kick off uh, an accusation and an investigation. And I go to the minister with my accusation. How do they go about proving that the accused is a witch? There are four main proofs. Now, the first one is a really easy one, and it's being known as a quarrelsome dame, or basically having a bad reputation. So if I go to my local supermarket, buy a loaf of bread, and it's mouldy, I go back, I say, excuse me, and they say, terribly sorry, hand me my money back. Life is lived openly. If I go to the market and I don't like the bread and I start complaining it's mouldy, I'm being quarrelsome. I'm being argumentative. Uh -huh. If I have an argument with my husband in the middle of the supermarket car park, people are just going to laugh and walk past. If I do that in the 17th century, there again I'm being quarrelsome. If I don't go to the kirk on a Sunday unless I've got a very good reason for not doing so, if I, if I argue with people, if I do bad things, that's the first one, just a generalised bad reputation and it's the first one that can trip you up. So even just if you're sort of bad-tempered and give people a funny look, that can trip you up. Something as mundane as me giving you a dirty look and then your hens stop laying, which sounds really trivial but if you if you don't have your hens laying then you've got nothing to sell in market so it actually matters the mundane becomes murderous very very quickly okay so that's your first one your second one is if you are delated as a witch and this means that another known witch has named you uh -huh. and Kirk would yeah. do this when they were questioning people they'd say to me they'd say like come on then Mary we know you're a witch what other witches were you with and I might name someone else so being delated as a witch Confessing to being a witch, obviously that's a big one. Um, fewer people confessed than you might think, which is really interesting. Um, they did use torture, but what they tended to use was what was known as walking and walking and watching, or walking and waking. They would keep you awake. It was basically sleep deprivation, uh -huh. which you know is outlawed today under the United Nations. But uh, it was a very, very effective way of making people confess. 
Um, but as I say, I'm very surprised at the people who didn't confess, who were very, very strong. I'd have been confessing within a second. I mean, my sister's name would have been the first one out of my mouth, I can assure you. <laughs> um, but the fourth proof is an interesting one. It was known as the devil's mark because it was thought mm. that you'd, you'd denied Christ and you were now a follower of the devil. So the devil would lay his hands on you and it's a parody of Christ. But because he was unnatural, he would mark you where he'd touched you. And it might be like a mole or a freckle. It was usually on your head or your neck or your shoulders. And they had witch brothers who would come along and find this mark. And this was a big proof. Interestingly, there were some witches where they would say, oh, yes, she's a witch. She's got the devil's mark on her. And then on examination, they couldn't find the mark. This didn't prove you were innocent. This proved you were such a tricksy witch you were tricky. that you could hide your devil's mark. Mm-hmm. But the devil's mark, I mean, that lasted for a long time, but it was a... An old belief, I mean, Anne Boleyn, when Henry VIII fell out with her and her enemies all started having a go at her, they would talk about the warts on her neck as being devil's mark, or they would talk about the little extra finger that she's supposed to have had in her left hand, mm. so anything that was slightly unusual. So with with one or all four of those proofs, you would then be sent off to trial. Usually it only took about one of the proofs to get you as far as a trial. Oh, wow, wow. Yeah. yeah. You're painting a, a word picture as you go along here in, 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 in my own head. I have been, I'm thinking this as we go along. I'm thinking of a couple who the previous night had a conversation along the lines of the, the, the man saying to his partner, one of the things I love about you is that cute little mole on your neck, not knowing that in the morning, that very mole could lead to her accusation, trial, and perhaps death. Yes. This is staggering. Yes, very much so. You mentioned earlier, did you say prodding or broading? I said broading, but broading. prodding's not that far off it. Uh-huh. So witch broaders, they were also known as witch prickers, and these were men... I know of one case of a witch brother who turned out to be a woman, but they were predominantly men, and they were the only ones that made any money out of the whole affair because having a witch in your locality was really expensive. Um, at one point, <coughs> the village of Stow, which is a tiny little village, the minister actually put a £2 plough tax on anybody that had a plough had to pay £2 a year, and this was in case they ever found any witches in Stow, which they did, and that would pay for the trial. Um, but yes, a witch brother, and the, the most famous of whom was John Kincaid from mm. Trenent, and he would come down on his horse with his servant, and he had a steel bodkin, maybe about five centimetres in length. You would be brought into him, your, your shoulders, your neck exposed, and he would plunge this into any mark that he thought was the devil's mark. And either you wouldn't, you wouldn't scream out because you wouldn't feel any pain, or it wouldn't bleed. Now, the first time he did that, you might cry out or it might bleed. And he would just keep going until he found a spot where you genuinely didn't cry out, possibly because you were unconscious on the floor, I don't know. Or some witch brothers were known to actually have retractable bodkins, so it went back into the handle, so it looked as if they had stabbed you with this bodkin and oh, didn't. Oh, magic, yeah. You see? Yeah. Um, so some of the sort of more... Uh, dubious ones, shall we say, would would get up to all sorts like that. And so you get a lot of these men going around the countryside. Uh, John Kincaid tended to come down into the borders and he plied quite a trade. Um, 
Eventually, at one point, he actually gets arrested himself and gets put in the toll booth in Edinburgh, not because he's been doing anything too naughty with witches, but because he was brooding without the requisite permit to do so. Um, but basically, they just gave him a slap on the wrist, a fine, and he was let out yeah. again, so that yeah. was all right. So the witch brother was not particularly equal opportunities. Oh, absolutely <laughs> not. No, I mean, there was one chap, Crassy, I think his name was, and he had a female uh, accomplice. And what they would do is they would pitch up in a town. She would start making accusations, saying sort of she was a witch, but she knew all the witches in the town. He would be brought in to broad everybody. And then at the final bit, after he'd made his money, he would help her to escape. Um, and they carried this trade on for several years until they pitched up in one town and unfortunately she named the minister's wife. Uh, and so it all came out. Um, but there were several. There was a chap called Dick. He ended up having to run away to Newcastle because he was being chased by people because he had brooded the wrong people and made accusations. So, yes, but during their time, they made a, they made a good old living at it, yeah. So they had the incentive then, if we brought everybody in the village or town, we're going to find somebody. You're going to find somebody. And it's one of these things where you were paid for the number of witches you found. Uh -huh. So obviously you're going to find witches. It was very much like the Kirk ministers. The more godly I am, the more likely the devil is to attack me with his witches. Therefore, the more witches I find, that proves how godly I am. So it just goes round in the same circle. Okay, now I, I have... In my head here, this, this, this popular image of the witch. Long hair, one tooth, haggard, flying on a broomstick. <laughs> That's your Scottish witch, yeah? Absolutely not. Scottish witches did not fly on broomsticks. They did ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thing to do. <laughs> European witches might have done that. Scottish witches went to sea in sieves. Much more sensible. The stereotype we have of witches, and it is right up to this day, I've seen little girls dressing up as witches going out for Halloween uh, of the pointy hat and the black cat and the broomstick. That comes from 17th century propaganda woodcuts, mostly from the German states, funnily enough. And the problem was that most people, in fact, all people who were arrested as witches were ordinary. They were absolutely ordinary people. But that doesn't work under human psychology. You want mm. people to be other. You want them to be different. You want the monster to look like a boogie monster. And so you create the boogie monster. You create the pointy hat. When nobody wore a pointy hat, women wore like much hats, which was like a sort of, if you think of an old-fashioned white linen hanky with a couple of ties that tied under your chin, um, they would have had a broomstick. Well, they would have had a broom because they would have been sweeping. Of course, they may or may not have had a pet cat. But so this caricature comes up and that allows people to say, oh, that is the witch. Um, and, and she's an old lady and she's, you know, got the big nose with the wart on it and all of these caricatures. But of course, what tended to happen was there was a grain of truth there. Not all of the women that were arrested and tried as witches, but a vast majority of them were older. And also witches would be arrested and chucked in the local toll booth where they weren't fed properly, they were in a filthy, cold, dark cell with lice and rats and cockroaches and you were peeing in the corner and that's all there was. So by the time you're brought out to trial, you're looking in a right state. You good. look and you smell like exactly what people think a witch is going to look and smell like. And so that's where that caricature comes from and then it becomes embedded as the witch. So here in the Scottish borders, these are not women flying around on broomsticks. 
They're not turning the neighbors into toads or whatever popular mythology there is. It's linked to everyday events, like hens not laying, to go back to your, your, your earlier example. Yes, it's very much everyday life. If my cow stops giving milk or my hens stop laying or my horse goes lame, it's got to be somebody's fault. You know, I, I, I don't have anything to sell at market. I can't feed my family. My family could die of starvation over the border's winter. That is a serious thing. Somebody must have done that. I go to the Kirk on Sunday. I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. Why has this happened to me? I say my prayers at night. It can only be the devil and it must be witches. And the reason I think like that is because every time I do go to the Kirk, that's what the minister tells that's me. That's what he says. The yeah. minister says that the civil war is happening because of the devil. The plague has happened because of the devil. The harvest has failed because of the devil. Halfway through the century, we chop the king's head off. If that's not the world turned upside down, I don't know what is. So the only thing that happens when my cow stops giving me milk or my horse has gone lame is I try to think of which of my neighbours gave me a dirty look. And I genuinely believe that. Because if you put people under pressure and they have very little control except for the Kirk's authority... Because, of course, remember, at the beginning of the century, James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England, gets his fat backside on a horse and goes down to London as quick as he can because that's where the money's to be made. Most of the nobility follow him. The only authority in the land is the Kirk. It's the Kirk. And the Kirk are telling you every single day that the world is full of sin and the devil, old Nick, is out there grabbing souls where he can. So if you tell me that all the time and then my chickens stop laying, I'm going to be pointing at a witch. I'm yeah. going to be pointing at that next-door neighbour and calling her witch, absolutely. Yep, yep. You take me back to high school. One of my favourite plays was The Crucible, which was about <laughs> witch hunts. I, I even had a part in a, in a little school production that we did. Was that Arthur Miller? It was Arthur Miller. It was Arthur Miller, Miller. Yes. yeah. So, look, thank you very much. And, again, I will remind our listeners that for much more information, do try our website and get more details of Borders Witch Hunt in the 17th century. Thank you for listening. Thank you.